Welcome to the Obesity Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Matea Rentia, board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. Here, we talk about a path to metabolic health, and we have real conversations about chronic weight management and living a full life. Just a reminder, I am a physician, but I'm not your physician. So everything that's on this podcast is for informational purposes, but please go talk to your doctor about what's right for you. There is no medical advice being given on this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today I have, again, an absolute gem of an interview that I want to share with you. It's with my good friend, Dr. Tammy Hannon. She is a pediatric endocrinologist that I have known for years. I highly respect her opinion. And the reason I brought her on is that I myself am board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. And so I see patients 18 and over. But that doesn't mean that I'm not asked all the time from parents and grandparents that absolutely love their children and their grandchildren. How can I help this child of mine that has whatever eating pattern going on, or they think that a medication is needed, and they sort of desperately ask me, what can I do? And unfortunately, I don't treat those areas. And I don't, you know, it's not my area of expertise. But I want here to bring you a perspective of someone that I really respect in this area that does do this work that really is involved with a lot of this, so that you can get some of those questions answered. You know, what's the magnitude of the problem? Why should we even care about this to begin with? How can we help our kids if we think that they're struggling in this category? What are are the most loving things we can do? And where do you actually get the help for your child? This is something that we actually get into a conversation about this because access to care is not the same everywhere. There are not these comprehensive services everywhere that we would like. So we get into all of this. And then I think the really the million dollar question that's been the hot button topic recently has been, what about weight loss medications in the adolescent population? So we talk about a lot of this. Again, it's just kind of an introductory conversation if this is something that you've been wondering about. I hope that you find some inspiration here that could help you possibly on your journey or to pass this along to someone else that might be unfortunately going through this struggle. I want to just remind you, if you have been loving this podcast, please go ahead and share it with a friend or leave a review where you're listening because that's going to help us to help out more people to find good quality information on this topic when it tends to be very black and white or not evidence-based. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay. All right. Welcome, everybody. We have an extremely amazing guest today, Dr. Hannon. I have actually known her for years. I highly respect all of her opinions, and I'm so grateful that she's taken this time today to talk to us. So I'm going to call you Tammy, but I know it's Dr. Hannon. Can you tell us a little bit about what type of physician are you and what patients do you help? Yes. And thank you, Dr. Rentia. <laughs> I'm going to call you Matea. Yeah, Tammy is great. I take care of children. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. So that means I'm a pediatrician who has specialized in the care of children with endocrine problems. And that encompasses diabetes of all forms and other hormone problems related to the endocrine system. Principally in my clinical practice, I take care of children with diabetes. And there are two major forms of diabetes, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And so just right up front, we should probably just say that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune 
related kind of diabetes, not related to obesity or your diet, but related to your immune system destroying the cells in your body that make insulin. Whereas type 2 diabetes is a kind of diabetes where your body is having trouble making insulin or is making a lot of insulin, but insulin is not functioning well in your body. And that is the kind of diabetes that is most rapidly increasing in children and is related to the obesity epidemic. Thank you for giving us kind of that context. And and I'm wondering, because I'm internal medicine and obesity medicine, so I see patients 18 and over, but in the pediatric population, can you sort of give us some numbers to understand what's the magnitude of the obesity epidemic that we're experiencing with, with kids? One in five children meets the definition of pediatric obesity, which is defined using body mass index. So body mass index is a measurement of how much weight you have on your body for how tall you are according to your age for kids. So there's not a set cut point for kids like there is for adults. It for adults it goes by, you know, your developmental stage, your age and how tall you are. And body mass index for all intents and purposes correlates really pretty well with how much adiposity you have on your body with some exceptions. So the major exceptions would be for people who have a lot of lean body mass that is pushing their BMI up or for Asian populations who actually have more adiposity at a lower BMI. So those are two caveats. About one in five kids meets the definition of pediatric obesity by BMI definitions. But we know that minoritized populations, including Black populations and Hispanic populations, have closer to one in four children meeting that definition. That's really staggering to hear these numbers. It's disheartening because I know that a lot of that can lead to problems later. You know, I'm taking care of them later. But here's my question for you. What do you see in the pediatric population when there's that diagnosis of obesity? What do you typically see that can pop out metabolically? I know it always doesn't, but what are some problems that we can see? Yes, we see dyslipidemia. So high lipid levels that are usually triglycerides being high, we see an imbalance of the bad cholesterol and good cholesterol, if you will. So lower levels of cholesterol that protects our cardiovascular system. So we see dyslipidemia. We also see hyperglycemia or high blood sugar, and that can happen in two basic forms. Well, really it's a spectrum. So we see pre-diabetes where your blood sugar is elevated some of the time, but not enough to give you a diagnosis of diabetes. But we also do see diabetes in increasing numbers in kids. Um, And we see something called insulin resistance, which is not really a diagnosis that you can make with labs per se, but a physiologic phenomenon where your body is having to make more insulin to do the same amount of work that it it maybe did before. So for instance, 
if the more body fat I have on my body, the more insulin resistant my body is to the actions of a certain amount of insulin. So I'm having to make more insulin. That's what insulin resistance is. So a spectrum, we see insulin resistance, we see prediabetes, we see type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia. We also see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from something called de novo new lipogenesis. So new making of lipids in the liver deposits this these lipids in the liver in kids and in adults and sort of around the belly. And that we see primarily from the, the diets that we eat that are high in processed foods and sugars. Yeah. Actually, one of my next questions was, what do what do you think has contributed to this recent rise? Because I think it's only been over the past few decades that we've seen these trends sort of skyrocket. Yeah, it's very clear that genetics play a huge role in the amount of body weight we carry. Um, studies kind of vary from 40 percent to 70 percent of how much body weight you carry is related to the genes. And so we're learning more and more about that. So genes definitely play a part. However, genes in the context of a ubiquitous obesogenic society, meaning that we eat mostly processed foods, most of the foods we eat maybe aren't natural to our bodies because they're not fruits, vegetables, things that grow on the earth. And so there's also no doubt that the food environment has come together with the genetic background of increased risk and promoted more people having higher BMIs. I'm hearing you talk about this and it's so fascinating how complex it is. It's not just, we can't just blame it on one thing. And I think a lot of the time, what, what I end up hearing a lot on social, if I'm being honest, because people approach me a lot, it's parents that are really, they feel in a desperate scenario because they know that their child's weight is up and yet they feel like they're either not getting help or don't know what to do. So the question I literally get is how do I get help for my kids? What would you recommend to that parent? The first thing I recommend is talk to a trusted healthcare provider, pediatric healthcare provider. That could be a pediatrician, family practice, doctor, whoever is there for you, who you trust to, to talk about your concerns with would be my first thing, but that doesn't give you immediate help. The number one most impactful thing that a, that a parent can do is eliminate sugary beverages. Yeah, I hear a lot of, well, you know, it's not fair. They're a kid. They deserve this stuff. They deserve to be a kid. But if we're going to be real here, sugary beverages are not good for anybody. They're toxic to our bodies. And we know from really good research that sugary beverages promote obesity. They promote diabetes. And reducing sugary beverages can potentially prevent or reverse these things. In fact, I just read a study where they levied taxes on drink manufacturers in the UK 
and decreased the number of cases of childhood obesity by over 5,000 cases. That's amazing. Yes. And they've done this in Mexico and they've done this in Philadelphia. This is not like an isolated, this happens. We know sugary beverages are the number one way that kids get added sugar in their diets. And we also know that there's no redeeming quality of a sugary beverage. There's nothing good about it. So that's the number one most impactful thing that a parent can do. I like that you're saying that I'm, I was sitting here laughing on mute because I'm like, yeah, it's not like, well, you know what? But in moderation, that really is for them. I mean, it's just, we can't, I can't see any world for that. So I love how you made that super practical. That's just a really great starting place. What about though, a, a lot of parents, like what they're messaging me, they're saying, my kid is exercising. My kid is eating great. And a lot of what comes out is I'm hearing from them that they almost feel like they need to change the kid. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you deal with those dynamics in the room? Like, let's say they actually have made it into a visit. How do you navigate that? What do you start to look at with what's going on? Yeah, I will say up front, I really empathize with these families because I know that they're trying, they're, they're doing the stuff. So number one thing that is the hard and fast truth is generally increasing exercise and working out is, is not going to lead to weight loss in children or adults. So although I firmly endorse daily exercise as a life skill and very important for our bodies and minds, it is not going to lead to weight loss most of the time without dietary changes. And so what I always say is, you know, if one in four children or one in five children has the genetic background to develop obesity in our environment, it's really hard to counteract that without making some changes. So in other words, if you do what everybody else does on the background of genetic obesity, you will have obesity. So you do have to make some changes. Now, there are forms of genetic obesity that do benefit from other treatments, including medications. And there are FDA approved medications for children age 12 and up who have either known genetic mutations that are associated with gaining too much weight. And they're also approved for kids who may not have known genetic mutations, but have many genetic reasons for having a hard time with weight struggles. So um, I don't know, maybe you want to cut this out, but I want to tell you something that I've, I, I learned. I didn't know this before. Maybe you already know this, but do you know Labrador retrievers, some of the most popular dogs? No, they have a mutation in signaling of the melanocyte stimulating hormone that either increases appetite or decreases appetite at the at the receptor that basically tells you to eat more or eat less in your brain. Do you know laboratory retrievers have a mutation in this signaling system that makes them more prone to be more food driven? 
That's why I leverage. Also, there's this blind fish that lives like on the bottom of the ocean. It's like called the Mexican blind fish or something like that. They have a mutation in melanocortin for receptor that causes them to be food seeking that actually probably keeps their species going because they food seek. And so that's how they maintain their species. So I completely believe, I mean, I can't give you scientific proof, but it makes sense to me that humans would have some of these mutations to be food seeking because we have survived in times where we didn't have enough food. So it makes complete sense to me that many of us have these mutations that we can't do anything about regardless of how hard we try or not try. We, we're not changing that. I, I mean, this makes this makes intuitive sense to me what you're talking about with the different. So if, if people are listening, the different pathway signals that we have that regulate our appetite, whether it's up or down, because I think about a lot of people are exposed to the same foods, but one sibling might might be a higher weight. This is how it was in my family. Two of us were really overweight and two were not. And I always sat there. I was like, kind of what is going on here? on an intellectual level. So I've often thought, you know, is there something a little bit different with what happened with me versus some of my siblings? We were exposed to the same stuff, but yet we ended up in a different spot in life. And that's just interesting to think that that our genetics can kind of play a part in that. You mentioned that for some patients in the pediatric population, it might be appropriate for medication. I'm going to use the term anti-obesity medication. I'm wondering when is it appropriate for a family to try to seek out that help? I know that recently another one was added that was FDA approved. And so the request for this, I I imagine, can be going up. And so I'm just wondering, when is it appropriate to look into this and for what reason? And you know, where, where do we stand at this moment in the pediatric world on that? In the last month, the American Academy of Pediatrics has published clinical practice guidelines. This is really the first time the American Academy of Pediatrics has put forth evidence-based recommendations for treatment of childhood obesity. There have been task force recommendations before, but these guidelines are based on all the evidence that we have of showing what works and doesn't work for pediatric obesity. And the guidelines state that all kids from age two and up should be screened and evaluated for um, comorbid conditions associated with obesity, so with BMI and other lab tests. But the guidelines also do state that children 12 and up, when they meet criteria for these medications, should be, you know, a discussion should be had with their family as to whether or not this might benefit them. Because they're, what we know is that lifestyle interventions alone don't really translate to weight loss in children most of the time. And there could be a number of reasons for that. Developmentally, kids are supposed to grow. <laughs> Developmentally, kids aren't, you know, programmed to lose weight. But we know that the studies that have been done, and I'm talking randomized clinical trials in kids, that have included at least 26 hours of face-to-face -face counseling have 
mostly led to either weight maintenance or, you know, up to a five kilo weight loss on average in kids. So, you know, when you're talking about having a lot more weight to lose, that's generally not sufficient and not really widely available. I mean, how many programs offer intensive health behavior and lifestyle therapy for children? It's very rare that that's offered. And so the American Academy has recommended that in combination with lifestyle therapy, that medications be considered and discussed with families. So then who is actually prescribing this weight loss medication? Who do you see actually doing the prescribing? You bring up a very, very important point first. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing because we're getting at something, right? (laughs) I mean... So this is not insignificant that humans feel ashamed when uh, this is brought to their attention in an insensitive way or as a moral failing or as something that they should be able to control. When the science says that our genetic tendency, particularly when we're growing, we're growing children, doesn't really go along with just being able to think about losing weight and losing weight. In fact, that backfires a lot of times. And so, so number one, you bring up a really important point of who should be talking about this. And it should be somebody trained in adolescent and and pediatric development. And it should be somebody who's sensitive and knows about the science of why childhood obesity happens And what actually is effective? Because if you're presuming that trying to diet is going to be effective, you're just wrong. (laughs) You're just wrong and you should not be counseling families and children. Okay, so the the guidelines, the clinical practice guidelines go through all this too. But who should be prescribing these medicines? Anybody who delivers chronic healthcare to children and families. So pediatricians, family practice doctors, pediatric endocrinologists, pediatric obesity medicine specialists are prescribing these medications. And the medicines are being prescribed in a way that comprehensive care is in surrounding the child and the family such that they have mental health care, they have physical care, They have cognitive behavioral therapy offered, but again, this is the ideal situation, right? How many programs actually provide these resources? I mean, I'm hearing you talk about it and it makes so much sense in the context in which you're saying it, right? Because the way I'm hearing about it, people are like, they shouldn't just be a med just written for them, but that's not what's happening, obviously, where you're at or how you're helping people. But then I think about how, depending on where you're working, you don't have those resources. And I think that's much more the majority than people that have access to a really high level tertiary center. Yes. And I also think that sometimes organizations think, oh, you know, we do this for adults. Why can't we do this for kids too? And that's a slippery slope. Kids are not adults. So you and I can go through a program where we do cognitive behavioral therapy, working with people, and that's our decision. 
12 year olds, completely different thing. A lot of times parents come to me and they say, hey, I want you to tell my kid. I want you to coach my kid. I want you to tell them that what they're supposed to do and they need to do it. That <laughs> I'm is just not, laughing. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> that, that happens all the time, right? I know. That is not how children function or develop. So that's a slippery slope. And one goal of the American Academy of Pediatrics by putting out such comprehensive clinical practice guidelines is to get to policymakers and get to healthcare organizations and say, this is standard of care. This is evidence-based. Why are you not offering it? Yeah. Because when, when the guidelines came out, there there are a lot of pages, okay? And yeah. I felt like <laughs> people didn't read any of it. They didn't look at all what was in there, but then they said their opinions. And so when you say it in this way, how the point of us doing this is, I mean, I'm, I can imagine that it's to change the next five, 10 year landscape. It's not just at this moment, right? That the things might not exist, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to happen in the future. Exactly. It's sort of like saying, oh, well, you know, I don't think that kids are going to be able to stop drinking pop, so we should just keep them in the schools and everywhere where they go. No. I mean, if we think that something is going to help the public health of our children, we should work toward that even if we can't do it right now. It should be a goal of ours, I, I believe. Yeah, no, I strongly hear you. It's almost, I feel sometimes, and this is also in the adult world, we know some of the systemic problems and some of the things that need to change. And it almost feels overwhelming because you feel like I'm this one physician and you see all the problems all the time. And I kind of just root myself in, how can I help today? How can I help advocate for patients in different ways? You know, there's different causes that I'm involved in. And I think that but but if everyone does their part, then eventually we do get to a better place. But it's this global picture and it's not isolated, unfortunately. That's so right. And I, you know, the way that I feel about this is that we're not going to out medicine this problem. I say that a lot. While medicine is a tool, this is something that our society has to grapple with. And what do we want to do to change this in the future? Because other changes other than making medicine available are going to have to happen to decrease the epidemic. That there's the quote right there. We're not going to out medicine this. And I so agree. I, I, I say in the adult world that medicine potentially is a tool. It's not for everyone. Maybe it can be helpful, but you best believe if people are being successful, they're doing a lot of other things. And the power is not all in that medicine, although we have great trials that show the weight loss, but they're doing a lot as well. So I almost want to end there. And maybe if you could just leave us with, so if someone, parents, grandparents, they have a child in their life that they're worried about, that the doctor has spoken to them about weight, what are maybe, you You mentioned soda being one thing, but what is maybe your top, like say two tips of what they could do in the home to help support that child? And it could be any type of advice. No sugar sweetened beverages. Eat together. I love that. Eat with your kids. I think we also have an epidemic of not eating together and sharing the time together and keep your kids 
active. Now, when I say active, I don't mean they have to be running around doing 12 sports or even two sports or even any sports, but they should be in a club. They should have something that they're interested in other than, you know, their phone. And I know I'll raise four kids. It is so, so difficult to keep them doing this, but stay in school, stay active, be interested in something. I think in the long run, the more kids we can get to stay in school, to be active, to be interested in things, the better off we be. And then just your job is to love your kids. <laughs> job, really? I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. our, your job is to love your kids regardless and to help them. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I kind of like the message of... I kind of like the message of a health at every size with, because it's like at any size we can do these things, right? Actually, it, can can you talk a little bit more about this? Because I had such an interesting conversation back in the day with you. And can you sort of explain what the health at every size movement is, what it is and not? Because I don't think, I think people misunderstand it. Well, I think... In the media, it gets segregated into an us versus them kind of situation. And to me, it's not either this or that. It's this and that. We know that obesity is strongly correlated with lots of health problems in kids and adults. And we know that people with obesity are are human beings really no different than any other human being, right? So to me, it's our groups really in the end kind of want the same thing, but we're just not saying that. What we want is for people to be the best that they can be, right? We both want self-actualization. So the highest level of Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization. Both groups want that. I want that for kids. I don't care what size they are. I want them to be the best person that they want to be. And, you know, so health at every size, that's, it's the same message. Health for your physical body and for the health problems that you have. Why do we want that? It's not just so I can achieve a weight on a scale. It's so that I can have the best life that I can have. I think it's this. I think if the groups could come together and love the people, it would be so much better. I so agree. I was looking the other day online and one of these social influencers, her channel was all based on health at every size. And I read the text underneath one of her posts and she says, I feel my best at this size 10 to 12. And she has a very active channel. She's showing all the exercises. And I was thinking in my clinic, I describe that as your best weight. That's where you get to where you feel great and you can sustain it and your health habits. You like your exercise, your nutrition, things are rocking and rolling along for you. And I thought, we're, yes, we're all seeing the same thing, except you. some people want to polarize. And I really think it's all a spectrum. And where do you feel best on that? So if you need to identify with health at every size to stop shaming yourself, to support yourself, to do those things. But ultimately, you sort of said something along the lines in the past to me that no matter what size we are, we can take great care of ourselves and we can do things to support ourselves. And I just remember thinking, yeah, I love 
hearing that because I think I used to think in the past that if I couldn't get to mid-range normal BMI, somehow that would be horrendous for me, that I could never have good metabolic health. And I think I've greatly improved things with the weight I've lost and how I'm living. So I think everybody, wherever they're at, they can work on something and it might look, it's going to look radically different depending on where we start. 100%. Yeah. I just want to say we have talked about so many things. I've learned so much from you. Thank you so much for spending this time. Absolutely. My pleasure.